Amen. Well, good morning. What a beautiful day it is in the Lord and what a beautiful worship service. Uh, going all the way back to the beginning and the announcements and just some of the wonderful things happening in the life of our church. And then, of course, the worship itself and the songs that we sang. And uh, th that, that one song, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, Jennifer, the one, uh, this, I think it was the second one we sang or the third one. Uh, we went to a conference and heard that played, and they used a cello in that song, and it was just profound. It, it just took you somewhere. Well, today, this took me somewhere. I was just so thankful uh, to be in worship of God with God's people, and I, you know, we could take that for granted. It's so easy to take for granted, but our Ukrainian brothers and sisters, they don't take it for granted. And we shouldn't either. So, very thankful to be with you. I, uh, I, I want us to take our Bibles, and if we can, we're going to probably begin somewhere around the beginning of chapter 9, or towards the end of chapter 9, verses 29. And then we'll carry forward into chapter 10. Uh, today, we'll, we will actually come through a transition as this unfolding story occurs where we move from a study of Saul to the character and ministry of the Apostle Peter. And uh, it's just a quick transition. You can see it here. It's interesting. Uh, and I want to say a few words about that. But for the past two chapters, we've been learning about Saul. Saul, who God raised up to ultimately become the Apostle Paul, and he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. This narrative begins at the end of chapter 7. And If you want to look back at chapter 7, verse 58, where we find Stephen giving a defense of the gospel before the Jewish leaders, but it didn't end so well in human terms. As Stephen was taken out, it says in verse 58, then they cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's the first instance where we have something about Saul. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, the very next verse, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the church left Jerusalem, not all uh, believers, but many left and went into the neighboring regions of Judea and Samaria. And this obviously was exactly what Jesus said would happen before he ascended. He said, uh, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the utter parts of the, of the earth. And so the church begins to disperse. The focus of Scripture turns to this man Saul so that in, an, in a two-chapter span, we're given a jet tour of his early life, his beginning in the New Testament. He was Saul of Tarsus, the young, successful, energetic rabbi, and then he becomes Saul the persecutor, and then Saul the blind and then Saul the convert, and finally Saul the preacher. And in two chapters, we see him go from Saul the persecutor 
to Saul the preacher. That's a, that's a wonderful turnaround in his life. And then all of a sudden, as we approach the close of chapter 9, Saul seems to just fade into the backdrop of this unfolding narrative of the church. Let's look at this abrupt transition. Look, look if you will. It, it says in Acts 9.29, and he, speaking of Saul, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. The Hellenists were Jews who, because of Alexandria the Great and the, the Greek Empire, they had such influence that it reached all the way to Jerusalem and beyond uh, with the culture of the, of the uh, Greeks. And so these were Jews who were more uh, able to follow the Greek culture than the Jewish tradition in terms of just how they lived their lives. And they were rising up against Saul. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea to send him off to Tarsus. Tarsus would have been his hometown. That's where he was born. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. That's it. Saul, there's no more mention of him for a while now. So he comes on the scene. He's a, he's a problem for the church. He gets saved miraculously by the, by the work of the Spirit of God in regeneration. And, and now he becomes this great minister of the gospel. And now all of a sudden he takes a back seat. Because the scripture, the canonized word of God, is going to take us in another direction. The spirit is still working, and it's not just through Saul. So it says, uh, it says in verse 32, now as Peter. I mean, right there, the very next verse, Saul's now out of it, Peter. Let's talk about Peter. So just like that, we transition. And now Saul becomes Saul the unknown. And uh, we don't hear about him for quite some time. In fact, uh, probably about... Nine to 12 years, Saul is missing from the Scripture. You don't see or hear anything about him as the Holy Spirit now is showing us what others are doing, what other apostles are doing, what the church is experiencing. And then all of a sudden, Saul comes back into the picture, but now he's more referenced, even though he is still mentioned as Saul, but all of a sudden he becomes Paul, the apostle. And so, look, look at verse 32, if you will. It says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately Aeneas rose and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. I want to just pause for a moment and focus on this, because I think there's something very, very serious that's happening. Peter is simply the tool that Jesus uses to do this healing to this man named Aeneas. And he even mimics what he has heard from our master, Lord Jesus, he mimics to Aeneas. It's interesting here. He says, rise, Jesus said, rise, take up your bed and walk to the lame man. Here Peter says, rise and make your bed. In, in the next story that we're going to read here, 
Peter speaks to a woman who has just died. Her name is Tabitha. And he says, Tabitha, arise. Sound familiar? Jesus, our master, spoke to a dead man and said, Lazarus, come forth. It is not about Peter. It is not that Peter had some special dispensation of power that nobody else had. It's not that Peter is the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. That's why he's the Christ, Christos, anointed one. It's Peter who is simply a tool in the hand of God at this point. And he's doing exactly what he was taught to do by the Holy Spirit. If you want to go back, remember what Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended. He said in John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. So how much does the Holy Spirit teach us as believers? Not some, all things. And he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And now you have Peter who is remembering what the Lord did, what the Lord said, and he under the power of the Holy Spirit is simply allowing the Lord to use him. And so he ministers to this man Aeneas, and this man is raised up after eight years being lame. Now, I want to talk to you for a moment about signs and wonders in the life of the early church because they were given for very specific purposes. There's more than one, but they were given with specific purposes in mind. Our God is a God of wonders and the creator and sustainer of all that is, right? God has the power to suspend natural laws in order to fulfill his purposes. Miracles were part of the ministry throughout the Old Testament. You look at Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Joshua, and of course Jesus and the apostles also performed miracles, primarily to serve a purpose. And the primary purpose in the New Testament for signs and wonders is, is this, that they would confirm the message that those who were speaking to the crowd and performing the miracle that what message would come out of their mouth would be confirmed to the people. It's one, it's one thing for someone to say, well, here's what I think, here's what I believe, and here's my opinion. It's another thing to say, no, this is what the Lord says, and you're like, okay, you're going to throw the God card down, like the Lord said this. And then all of a sudden they do a sign or a miracle, and you're like, ooh, maybe this is the Lord. They needed that in the New Testament because they didn't know who Jesus was. And these men are preaching in the name of Jesus. They are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to bring validity to the message that they were preaching, the Lord would give them signs and wonders to perform. And that's what you're seeing here at the end of chapter 9. Some people seek after signs and wonders because... There's many reasons why, and we need to be careful that we not seek signs and wonders for the wrong reason. Let me give you several reasons, okay, that people will seek signs and wonders today, okay? 
Some people seek after a sign and a wonder because they want confirmation of the truth of God. Just like I just said, John 2, John 2, 23, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. So the, the actual sign or the wonder brought validity to what was coming out of the mouth of Jesus or out of the mouth of a disciple, and people believed. That, that's a good thing. However, there comes a time when even miracles are enough. You've had enough miracle. You've had enough sign enough wonder. Now you don't walk by what you see. You walk by what you believe, right? When Moses hesitated to obey after a series of miracles at the burning bush, the scripture says in Exodus 4 that the Lord's anger burned. Jesus made it clear that the better way is to believe without needing a miracle. When he visited the Samaritans in John 4.41, he said, because of his words, many more became believers. And just a few verses later, Jesus rebukes the Galileans, unless you people see miracles and signs and wonders, you will never believe. He marveled when people were able to believe him just by his words. And then he became frustrated with people who had to have some kind of a trick that came with the words. They were really there for the trick. They weren't there for the words. Interestingly enough, some people after sign, uh, seek signs and wonders because they don't believe the signs and wonders which have already been performed. That wasn't enough. I need more. More, more, more. The Pharisees of Matthew 12 were like this. Jesus had been performing miracles for quite some time when a group of scribes and Pharisees came to him with a disrespectful demand to see another sign. Give us a sign. And they were specific. Give us a sign from heaven. We want to see something like what happened with Elijah when he sent down fire from heaven to strike the, and consume the sacrifice. They're wanting a sign. They can't believe without a sign. Uh, that's not the answer. The sign is not the answer. Be very careful in seeking signs and wonders. Let me tell you why. Because if you read the book of Revelation, at the end, it says that the Antichrist, the false prophet, will rise up and perform many signs and wonders, and many will be deceived by them. The answer is not the sign and the wonder. That's not what it's about. It's about the words of Christ is about the words found in the Bible, the living word of God. That's where we find our hope. That's where we find our life. And so faith comes by hearing and hearing by signs. No, by the word of God as believers. And I'm not saying that if you see or hear about something that's, I mean, we look at what's happening in the Muslim world right now. Muslims are coming to Christ in an unprecedented way. We, we heard that from our missionaries that have visited us, and they're seeing visions. But why would God send a vision to a Muslim? Because Muslims don't believe. They've been taught that what they, their religion is the religion. And then all of a sudden, they have visions, and God is moving in special ways. So we don't criticize that. We don't look down upon that. We don't, we don't poo-poo that. But at the same time, we don't hang our heads on everything that's happening in the world of signs and wonders. 
Be very careful there that you not create idol or, or commit idolatry, worshiping after things more than God himself. Um, some people seek signs after signs and wonders because they're just curious thrill seekers. I can't wait to go to church today. What are we going to see? Somebody was on Facebook this past week and they said something about, uh, when I go to church, I want to encounter God. Like that's the purpose, the church is to encounter God. So outside of a church service, you can't encounter God? And what does that mean, encounter? Is that some kind of a physical thing that happens, that manifests? What, happened, what does that person do with the passage that says, for alone my soul waits in silence, for my hope is in him. There are so many ways to encounter God. Don't seek after signs. Don't be a thrill seeker. Many Christians are today. They, they pick a, ch a church based on that. I just don't think that the that the Spirit's moving in that church. Well, I mean, what does that mean if He's not moving, that He's not doing things the way you want Him to? Maybe you haven't broadened your understanding of Scripture enough to know that the Spirit moves as He wills. And sometimes a congregation that just sits quietly, sometimes a congregation that studies the Word of God... Could there, could there be anything that would promote and propel the true worship of God more than knowing Him? The more you know, the deeper your worship goes. The higher your praise goes. And so that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Some people seek after signs and wonders because they hope to get something for themselves. Remember when Jesus fed the multitudes, a large crowd followed after Him to the other side of Galilee because He fed them? And Jesus saw their true motivation, and he rebuked them. Listen to what he said in John 6, 26. I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You're not coming after me for what I will say to you. You're coming after me so that you can fill your stomach, because I provided a big meal for you. Very important that we understand the motivation of our heart when we come to church, when we come to worship God, when we get up every day in our own personal time with the Holy Spirit who dwells within us and we make time for God through worship. Very important that we check our heart for motivations. What's, what's really behind my worship? It's better, better than seeking after a new miracle is taking God at His word. Simple faith is more pleasing to the Lord than a reliance on some dazzling sensory experience. Jesus told Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me, and yet they believe. So what's greater, to believe because you saw something or to believe because he said it and you have faith in what he said? Now that we've put signs and wonders in their proper biblical understanding, let's look at the next story here. In verse 36, now there was, a, was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated, in other words, the other name for Tabitha is Dorcas. I like Tabitha better. 
How many of you ladies would like to walk around being called Dorcas? Okay, that's a little too close to another word, and I don't think anybody wants that. Um, but here's the beauty of, of, of Tabitha. Uh, she was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda, that's where Peter was at, was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to, to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when, the, uh, and, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the windows uh, stood beside him, all the widows, I'm sorry, not windows, uh, that's a new name for widow, all the widows uh, stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. So they're really having this wonderful time of memory of Tabitha and her, her life, her ministry, and they're, they're mourning her, law, her, her death. They're, they have a great loss. Verse 40, but Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, the dead body of Tabitha, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she, had, when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her, her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, that, and many believed in the Lord. Again, the purpose behind that wonder. What is it? that people would believe the message of the gospel. Obviously, Peter didn't just present her, and people go, I believe in Jesus. He shared the reason this woman stands before you today. And as he shared the gospel, people believed. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now, it's important to note that Tabitha was not resurrected from the dead here, as Jesus was. Because when Jesus was resurrected, he was resurrected in a new body, a different body. It was a glorified body. He then walked the earth in that new body. He could eat food, and yet he could walk through a wall. Think about that. I don't mean plow the wall over. I mean literally just go through it. It was a glorified body. It was a body that no longer needed a space suit if you were in outer space. The, the glorified body that you and I will have does not need a space suit. We're not going to be in heaven like this, floating around. Lord, I love you. It's so good to be here. No, your new glorified body will be able to travel into the unknown, the third heaven, into the throne room of God, the, the, the temple of God, and worship him. This, this woman was raised in the same body she had before she died. So it's not the same thing. But it is raising someone from death. This is a big deal, okay? Now, uh, another thing to consider in this story is, why did God raise Tabitha? Again, remember now, this is not Peter doing this. This is not something in Peter that was so powerful that he could raise somebody from death. This was God through Peter. Remember what it said? It said before he raised her, what did he do? He knelt and he prayed. He prayed. 
I believe in prayer, God revealed to him what to do. And he did it. And God's the one that did it through him. But interestingly, so God raised Tabitha. Why didn't God raise Stephen after the stoning? If you're going to put value on the effect of ministry, Tabitha ministered to the people in Joppa, but Stephen was one of the young men who God used to be a waiter and serve the Hellenistic widows in Jerusalem and then raised him up with this powerful message and he preaches and he proclaims Christ and people are getting saved and then the Jews come after him to try and trick him and they brought in a false, char false charges against him and he delivers this incredible message. The scripture says that when they came to him to try and, 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 and you know, dupe him and try to uh, twist his words and try to uh, uh, prove that he doesn't know what he's talking about, it says they couldn't. Stephen was so wise in the word that they couldn't even, they couldn't knock him off point. And, and so he's, he goes out and I mean, he's having this incredible ministry. Why didn't God raise him? Why just this woman who's only known in Joppa? The answer is, I don't know. And you don't either. And the Bible doesn't tell us why. All that we can take from this is what we see from the whole counsel of God. You can't look at one passage and make a determination. You have to study the whole Bible to understand the character and the nature of God. And all I can walk away with is God knows more than I know. God does things for his purposes, for his glory, and I shouldn't try to question it or correct him in it. I submit to God as God. He's not a man that he should lie like me. And so when God does things that we can't explain, we don't, we don't try to make up some story to explain it. We just say, I'm clueless. I can't tell you why. Why didn't, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things you could compare that to. A lot of godly men and women who died and God raises one and then another, they doesn't raise them. I don't know why. All I know is Tabitha's not hanging up on it. When she was dead, she was happy to be with the Lord. I imagine when she, he raised her up, she's like, oh, come on. <laughs> I can guarantee you, we know from Stephen's story, he, God, as he's being stoned to death, he's close to death. And God pulls back the window of heaven and he sees in and he, he sees Jesus standing there. He went straight to be with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Stephen went straight to the Lord like you and I. And I'm telling you right now, he wasn't worried about the fact that Tabitha got raised. I'm with the Lord now. Are you kidding? See, we're the ones, we're the ones that hang up on this stuff. Why? You're not going to want to hear this. But I include myself in it. I'm not above you, I'm not different than you, I'm just like you. It's our own selfish reasons that we want God to do what we think he ought to do. What happens when a person who's young passes away? 
The parents grieve deeply. No parent wants to outlive their children. No, no parent. But all of a sudden, after they start thinking through, they're like, our child will never experience what it is to be married. We won't have grandkids. Life was cut off. And they're giving all these reasons. Now listen, we're human beings. We're made of flesh and blood, so therefore... That's how we think, right? That's, that's natural to being in this body. But we're not just humans. We are spirit beings. We should think spiritually. And in thinking spiritually, we now know where that child is. If they knew the Lord. And while we might not see a wedding and we might not see them grow up, we might not see grandchildren and watch all of that taking place, they are not suffering they are loving life in a way that we can't understand. Does that make it easy? No. And I'm not trying to make something that's very painful, very difficult. I'm not trying to make it sound trivial or trite. It's not. It's, it's a significant matter. But I'm just saying, if you step back and look at the spiritual implications of this, Paul made it very clear in 1 Corinthians. You know what he said? He said, he said, uh, um, my, my body is in decay. It's falling apart. But my spirit is growing stronger day by day. The more I'm weakened in my flesh, the more my spirit comes alive. To the point that I've seen people who are on their deathbed and all of a sudden, just lift their arms. I've seen this. I'm coming home. I had one woman who was in the room with me with her father. She, the, the hospital said, hey, there's nothing else we can do. You can take him home. And uh, so that's what she was there. She said, Daddy, I'm here. We're going to take you home. She was trying to comfort him with those words. And he said, yes, I'm going home. And she goes, yes, you are. He goes, no, no, I'm not going to your home. I'm going home. He was excited. And within 12 hours, he was gone. See, that's what happens in the spirit. We, 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 we should net look, I'm not saying we shouldn't feel what we feel. I'm saying that we should never disconnect what we emotionally feel in this physical body from who we are in our spirit body that's going to be given to us. And in our spirit that's within us, we should get excited for what's about to, to occur. Now, does, that, does it excite you to think that your loved one won't be with you? No. That's painful. That's sorrow. But excitement for what they're about to experience. And like, uh, I'm jealous. You're going to see the Lord real soon. See the difference? A true believer doesn't allow selfishness to rule them. You will feel it. But you know there's something more than what's good for you. It's what's good for the Lord. Why God lets things happen the way, the, happen the way they do, I can't explain it. Well, look at verse 10, or chapter 10, if you will, please. I just want to read this, really, and make a couple comments. We're done, but let's just read it. Um, because God orchestrates ministry by the Spirit here in this chapter, and it is a beautiful orchestration. He speaks to two different men who are 30 miles apart. 
And then he carries out his plan, his divine plan, to have them intersect in Joppa. In the vision that God gave Peter here, Peter had pretty much put God in a box of limitations. He had a picture of who God is based on his Jewish upbringing. And now God's going to shake Peter to the core and change the way he thinks. Peter had grown up believing that the Jews were the only chosen and dearly loved of God. And he was right. Because there was a period of time where that's exactly the truth. But now all of a sudden, because of the work of Christ on the cross, God needs to change Peter in that understanding. So, verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, that would be a Gentile, not a Jew. He's a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So he's actually a Roman centurion that commanded somewhere between a hundred and several hundred men. He was, it says, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and he prayed continually to God. Here's a man who is a Gentile who is not saved, but he's God-fearing. By the way, that's what we should hope for and vote for in a president. Someone who is God-fearing. They might not be sa- I'm not asking him to be the pastor of the church. I do want him to lead the nation as a God-fearing president. About the ninth hour, verse 3, that would be three in the afternoon. The Jewish day would begin at sunrise. The third hour would be nine o'clock in the morning. The sixth hour would be noon. So he's at the ninth hour, which would be three in the afternoon. Of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him. So he is seeing a vision clearly of an angel. And the angel calls him by name. God is speaking to a Gentile by name. God doesn't just know the Jews. And he stared at him in terror. Cornelius is blown away when the angel calls him by name. What is it, Lord? He doesn't know who he's speaking to. And he said to him, (laughs) excuse me, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. This unsaved Gentile who's God-fearing, who is praying to God for what he knows. He doesn't know much. He doesn't know the gospel. But he's praying to God and however he knows. And it says that for God it became, that prayer, a fragrance offering to him. You say, well then why does he need to get saved? He doesn't need to get saved because God heard his prayer. He, he, his prayer was a, was a beautiful fragrance before God's nostril. Well, he does need to get saved. That's why God's going to send Peter to Cornelius. It's one thing to be God-fearing. It's another thing to be saved, to know Jesus personally. So while Cornelius has not yet heard the gospel, he is speaking with God, uh, the angel who's sent by God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the, excuse me, by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and devout soldiers, a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So he has 
this experience that he is supposed to meet with this man who's down in, uh, who, who just is living with this Simon the Tanner. His name is Peter. So he sends his men to go bring Peter to his house. And, 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 and God sends an angel in a vision to Cornelius, but God's going to use a man to preach the gospel. The angel did not preach the gospel. He could have. He knew the gospel. God doesn't use angels to preach the gospel. God uses men and women to preach the gospel. This is our role. We play a role in this. And so there's this divine encounter between Cornelius and Peter. The whole thing is set up in heaven. Next day, verse 9, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common that Gentiles eat, things that are unclean. And, and, and the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. So what God has cleansed, whatever God has declared to be clean, you must not call common. Common meaning impure, unholy, unacceptable to God. God says, no, now those things that once in the Old Testament under the Mosaic law were, were unclean are now clean. How could that be? Because Jesus Christ has gone to the cross and he's changed the whole game. Just like Scott so aptly shared with us that the night of Passover meal, they, the disciples took the Passover meal with Jesus. And then after the meal, Jesus institutes a new Passover, a new common way to remember, no longer looking at the Israelites in the wilderness. That's what the Passover meal, the Seder is about. No, no. Now it's what Christ is going to do on the cross that we remember. Amen? It's different now. It says in verse 16, this happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So this vision... Uh, of this sheet with the corners bound coming lowered down with all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. And he's saying, take and eat. And he's like, no, I'm not eating that stuff. That's unclean. And three times God spoke to Peter and said, what I tell you is clean. You can eat it. Now in Hebrew language, in the way they communicate, uh, emphasis comes by repetition. God said it three times, trying to emphasize to Peter, stop saying it's unclean. I have made it clean. Now, Peter is perplexed by all of this. He doesn't really understand it. He doesn't know what really is being said, but God really isn't talking about food, even though he is, but that's not really the deeper implication here. It's about people. It's about people who are not Jewish that Peter would have never associated with. And God's changing his heart. Oh, that God would change our hearts towards people. 
people that we've always looked down upon, people that we always see as inferior, people that you say, I would never, I, you know, I don't show partiality until you see that one person at the mall. And we all do. Somebody that we just kind of hold at an arm's length. I'm not going to forgive them. What they did to me, are you kidding? I can't forgive them. Well, you can't follow Scripture is what you're telling me. Because Scripture commands you to forgive. Now, it might be hard to be around them. You certainly probably don't trust them. And the Bible doesn't say you have to trust them. But you must forgive. This is for us as well as for Peter here. I want to just say this before we, before we stop. And next week's going to be really powerful as we get into this meeting of the Gentiles with Peter, what happens. But the Mosaic law was given specifically to the nation of Israel. It was made up of three parts. It had the Ten Commandments, you had the ordinances, and then you had the worship system, which included everything about the priesthood, everything about the tabernacle and the offerings, and, the, and then, of course, the festivals that they would have, the three major festivals and many minor festivals. The reason I want to share this with you this morning in closing is because today... Today, in our community and around our nation and around the world, there is a cult that has come up. And it comes in the name of Jesus. And many Christians are being, they're being wooed and they're succumbing to something that is not biblically right. They are being drawn back into legalism, stuff that was in the Old Testament. And this group, I'll tell you what it's called. It's called the Jewish Roots Movement, or maybe you know it as the Hebrew Roots Movement. Do your own homework on it. You need to know about it. They'll appeal to Christians. Wouldn't it be wonderful to know and under, better understand the history of the Jews, so that we could really practice Christianity to the fullest. But here's the thing they're not saying to you directly, is they are all about Torah. In fact, they place greater emphasis on Torah than the New Testament. In fact, they place, they take Paul and they push him down. They belittle Paul. Because Paul is the one that God used to address Jewish roots movement <laughs> at the core. That it's not about Old Testament law and legalism and you practicing what the Jews in the Old Testament practiced. It's about the freedom that you now have in Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what God is dealing with Peter about. Stop trying to make everything fit according to the Old Testament law. Jesus has died. Jesus has been resurrected. Peter, you're now a different person. You need to see what I've done, and you need to receive what I've done. You need to love all people. You no longer have to live by the ceremonial and the sacrificial laws and ordinances of the Old Testament. And yet we have people today who are calling others back into that nonsense. So let me quickly give this to you, okay? Write it down, please. Okay? The purpose of the Mosaic Law was to accomplish several things for the Jews. Number one, to reveal the character of holy, eternal God. 
and he revealed it to the nation of Israel. Okay? If you want a passage, Leviticus 19.2. You could also go to Leviticus 20, verse 7 and 8. So that's one purpose for the Mosaic law, the law of God in the Old Testament. Number two, to set apart the nation of Israel as distinct from all other nations on the earth. Exodus 19.5. There was a time when Israel was different from the world. And God didn't reach out to the world. He reached out to Israel. Number three, reveal the sinfulness of man. The Mosaic law reveals the sinfulness of man. Although the law was good and holy, it did not provide salvation for the nation of Israel. It simply revealed that they were sinners, and then God put ordinances and practices in place whereby not that they would be redeemed from their sin, but they would be covered from their sin. The Day of Atonement, the sacrificial lamb, all of these kinds of things, those were important. Number four, the Mosaic Law provided forgiveness through the sacrificial offerings for the people who had faith in the Lord and the nation of Israel. Number five, provide a way of worship for the community of faith through the yearly feasts. They had wonderful feasts. They would gather from all over the known world and go back to Jerusalem three times a year, up to three times a year, where they would have these wonderful celebrations. The, the, the Mosaic Law spoke of those things. It instituted those things for Israel. That's a good thing. But that doesn't mean that now you have to go to a feast. You understand? It, it, it provided God's direction for the physical and spiritual health of the nation. Number six, provided God's direction for the physical and spiritual health of the nation. It is, you know, pork isn't the best food for you to eat. That's why the scripture says, you know, whatever you eat, do it moderately. You can eat anything, but do it moderately. Everything is, is you're free to eat, but it's not all good for you. So be careful with shellfish. Okay, some of you don't go out today and pork out on, you know, like two plates of fried shrimp. Be careful. Do it moderately. It's what the Lord teaches in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you wouldn't have touched anything that was, had a shell. You wouldn't have touched, you know, pork. Okay, there's a difference. Number seven, reveal to humanity. The law reveals to humanity that no one can keep the law, but everyone falls short of God's standard of holiness. The law was given to us for that purpose, to let us know this is what it will take for you to keep the law. No man can keep the law. So really the law was setting us up to receive the grace message of God through Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.24, write it down. Galatians 3.24, so then the law was our guardian until, until Christ came. Say that to the Jewish Hebrew roots person. You know what they're going to say? Who said that? You'll say the Apostle Paul in Galatians. Well, see, there's the answer. Paul said it. They belittle Paul. The reason they have to belittle him is because he would literally kick the legs out from under their whole position of what they're doing. How about Romans 10, 20, 10, 4? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let me say that again. Christ is the end of the law 
for righteousness to everyone who believes. You no longer have to live by the law. You've been set free. Amen. My battery's going out on my... I'm preaching so long the battery's going out. So you, that's what you say to your friends when they come out and say, oh, you know, um, we had a good service today. Did the battery go out on your speaker? <laughs> then you didn't have a good service. He didn't go long enough. No, just... Okay. See, by faith in Jesus Christ, the believer has the very righteousness of Christ imputed to him, not by works of the person, by the work of Christ. We receive righteousness through Jesus, not through the keeping of the law. If you start keeping the law, you're going to be in misery because it was never designed to be the answer for you. It was simply designed to point you towards Jesus, who is the answer. So here's the question I close with. Are you trusting in yourself to keep all the commandments of God over time, which, by the way, is impossible? Are you looking to yourself to do certain works, keep certain, you know, check certain boxes every day and just kind of be this person that walks in moral goodness? You'll never make it with God under those terms. Or have you made the choice to receive by faith Jesus Christ as your Savior, realizing that He fulfilled all the commandments that you couldn't fulfill, and He paid your penalty for sin, the penalty for breaking those laws. He paid for you. You're scot-free. It's like, it's like walking down the street and somebody walking up and saying, hey, man, are you Greg Simster? Yeah, I am. Yeah. Hey, listen, I just want you to know, I went to your bank and uh, I just eliminated all your debts. I took care of your debts for you. And you're like, seriously? You just took out all my debts? You, you gave me a zero balance? Well, not exactly. I I took out all your debts, and then I went ahead and put a million dollars in your account. Okay, now that is a very ridiculous analogy compared to Jesus, what he did for you. He eliminated all your sin debt. Never again, if you're a believer in Christ, will you be held accountable by your sins. Now, you can suffer by your sin in the sense that you're not living a, the fullness of life that God wants you to have through, through sanctification, which is being set apart for God. But, but you're not going to be going before the judgment seat of, of God for him to judge whether you go to heaven or not. You've been saved by Christ, imputed his righteousness upon you. But here's the thing. It's not just that he, that he eliminated your sin debt. He gave you his righteousness. Wow. Wow. What a deal. <laughs> that when God looks at me now, because I was justified by faith, he sees me as if I never sinned? That's what justification means. Just as if you've never sinned. Now, which way would you want to live? You want to live by the law and the moral goodness of your own heart, which is evil, the Bible says, and you will not make it before God that way. Not, you'll never go to heaven that way. 
Or do you want to just receive him by faith, trusting in him and letting his work of righteousness be given to you and the penalty of sin being broken in your life because he paid the price for you? Father, we thank you this morning for your goodness and your love. And even as Peter was trying to really figure out what does all this mean? This picture that God has shown me. Oh God, some are here today and not really having figured that out yet. I pray that today you would, you would pull back the curtain and they would be able to see the beauty of Christ, the beauty of salvation. And they would be set free from this moral bondage. It is a good thing to be morally right. But it's a bad thing to think that my moral goodness puts me in right standing with God. Oh God, may we just surrender everything about us and take on Jesus and let him be our life. And live each day for him. We pray it in Jesus' name. I, I want you to know that uh, the prayer partners and the elders will come. And they'll, they'll evenly distribute on both sides and spread out so that you have privacy. If today you have prayed to receive Christ. Or you would like for someone to just join with you. That you can communicate today. I'm believing in Jesus as my Savior. Come and talk to one of them. If you have a physical need, emotional, any kind of a need, and you just need prayer, this is not a church that we just come to church, sit in a pew chair, and go home. This is a chair where we are the body of Christ. We are in fellowship. We love one another. We pray for one another. So make sure that you take advantage of that. Church is not over until the Lord's done working in your heart. Okay, so continue to let the Lord minister to you. Thank you for being here. Hey, just one last thing that I want to say to you. I am real excited. This week, the Lord seemed to open some doors for us to consider um, moving uh, our, our, our possibly our men's, women's ministries and our adult Bible study that meets on Thursday nights moving to a site closer into town that's a beautiful setting and for the women's events for the men's ministry events possibly we could we're still trying to work it out with them but they're very favorable to us coming and it's a church and i'll tell you more after we know for sure that we uh, have this worked out but it would be closer to town and i think it would be a blessing and we'll launch a new midweek bible study and we'll start with a new book in the Bible, and it'll be at a new location. So it's like a relaunch, okay? And I know that's good because we've been a nomadic people for a long time, and we're still nomadic. We'll go wherever God allows us to go, right? Amen. God bless each of you. Have a wonderful day in the Lord. Fellowship before you leave. Find somebody, shake a hand. It's just good to find out what's happening in other people's lives. Make it about them. Amen. <laughs>